Welcome, welcome. You're listening to our podcast, Two Massage Therapists in a Microphone. My name is Mark. I'm a registered massage therapist, registered kinesiologist here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And uh, we have an episode that we are doing today on a little bit more of a serious note compared to some of the other stuff that we've been putting out, which was very light. And uh, we wanted to get into this topic because as regulated healthcare professionals, we have a lot of people that end up on our table or in our office or in our treatment space. And oftentimes there's a lot going behind that person other than say that musculoskeletal, neurological or whatever kind of injury or condition they have. And oftentimes there's so many things that play into the psychology of our particular patient that we might not know about. Or even if we do know that something exists or something goes on with them, We really don't know the full extent of it until we are either in that spot or we have someone really close to us, family, friends are in these types of positions. And I think it's really important for us as regulated healthcare professionals to, or anyone that works with the general public, to understand some of the things that people go through. And we're not talking from a textbook. We're not talking from a journal article. We're talking from the real life stories of people. So I have the pleasure of sitting down with a gentleman. His name is Stephen. He is nice enough to come in and uh, talk about his life and some of the things that has happened and currently what's going on with him now. Stephen, thanks for coming in, brother. Thank you for having me. I didn't really talk about it in the intro. I think I'll leave that to you to give our audience a piece of why we got in contact with you and wanted you to come in today. Um, well, the reason why I came in today was um, uh, via a friend who uh, was who asked me if um, if I'd be interested in speaking on the topic of addiction. And um, I'm, reco- I'm a recovered alcoholic and a, a crack cocaine addict. And, um, you know, for me, where should I begin? Um, you know, for me, I can, I can only tell you, you know, where it started for me. I was... Uh, I was born in uh, the Ottawa Civic Hospital. I was placed uh, when I was two and a half years old. I became a ward of the Toronto Catholic Children's Aid Society, and I was placed in a foster home. And from two and a half till uh, I was five, I was living on a farm with uh, a Caucasian family, and uh, they had six foster boys and three foster girls. And uh, I'm of a <laughs> I'm I'm a minority, so I obviously knew that she wasn't my mother. And I wondered why I was, you know, why I was here, and and, and I didn't understand. And uh, so anyhow, um, when I was five years old, I met my um, my parents, who are my parents today. They adopted me. It's a Jamaican family. Anyhow, they adopted me when I was five, and uh, things were good, I guess, for for a bit. But there was, uh, you know, there's, um, how would you say it? There's, there's, you know, I thought it was a charade. I didn't think that you were my parents. And I mean, I knew that you didn't love me as much as you loved your own kids. So where were you living at five with your adopted parents in Toronto? We, we were, we, yes, we were living in, in by the airport. And so uh, you had siblings? Yes, they had three daughters. The, my sisters, my adopted, well, my sisters, my adop- when I say my sisters are my adopted sisters right, okay. of the family that I got adopted into, they're 15 years older than me. Okay. So, uh, two are twins. And then there's my oldest who's, uh, who's, who's, she's, she was married when, when I was adopted and, uh, my two sisters were finishing high school going into university. Okay. So, you know, when I did get adopted, it was great. You know, I had my own mom and dad, but 
I never believed that, you know, that I, you could love me as much as you could love your own kids. And, right. and I thought it was a charade, you know, my cousins aren't really my cousins, you know, the kids across the street know that I'm really not your kid, yeah. you know, and stuff like that. And we moved. That thought process starts from like five or, or you grow into that? Well, you're, you're a kid. You're not stupid. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm, 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 I'm brown and you're white. I mean, I know you're not my mom, you know, and I knew these other kids who were in the same predic- predicament as me. Those weren't your kids either. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that part I could, I could figure out. So when I did get adopted, it was, it was, it was great for a bit, but then, um, you know, there, there's this thing called, it's kind of like a social anxiety and a, a social awkwardness. You know, I never felt like I fit in. And, mm-hmm. and then we moved to the States in uh, 1980 we moved to Florida. You know, I never really knew the, my, the color of my skin until I moved to the United States of America. Because Florida is really strange because a lot of people, they see Florida as Miami or they see Florida as Orlando. They don't realize that the majority of Florida, sorry for all of you Florida listeners, it's a whole different story. It's very kind of, you know, Southern state type of thing well yeah the 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 outside the cities especially i I would say and it's 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 not as segregated as as you see on like on like a mississippi burning kind of segregated yeah but but it's nothing it's not as diverse as when you're living in a multicultural city like toronto it's it's just not because i i frequent florida i'm mixed and my wife is white canadian when you're in the northern part of florida you know driving through jacksonville like you really feel that you really feel it. Well, so much so that, you know, the white guys would say, you know, you don't really remind me of a black guy. And and, and, and I mixed it as well. But uh, you don't really remind me of a black guy. You remind me as one of us. And and then and then the, the black guys would, you know, because I sounded to them, I sounded white. Yeah. You know, they'd say, you didn't call me, a, what, what's up, white bread? Yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. Uh, so it was, it was just really weird, you know. And, you know, anyhow, so I went to school there. I came back to Canada to live with my sisters because my parents are really old. So I came back to live with my sister when I was what, uh, I think it was 16 when I was, um, a sophomore. So that would make me when I came back in grade, grade 10. Yeah. I came back in grade 10 and, uh, I lived with my sisters and then I started my oldest sister. Then I started drinking and then I'd say, you know, add a couple about a year and a half on top of that. You know, I uh, I started, I was introduced to crack cocaine. And How did you get introduced to alcohol? Or is this just like a regular high school kid? Thing? Yeah, like, you know, I mean, it's just a regular kids. You know, I was I was doing everything that my friends were doing. They were yeah, drinking yeah. and it was fun and I had a great time. Yeah. You know, um, when the, the hardcore, because my friends don't do hardcore drugs. And the reason why it was introduced to me my um my my friend's sister was a stripper mm. you know so i mean i'm a younger young man she's an, a, a little bit older than me and you know she's she's got the curves on the dude and you know hey i mean you know the rest of the story ro, ro you know how it goes right and uh and she warned me and she says you, you don't want to do this and like ah don't worry about it and you know, that don't worry about it lasted for, you know, I suffered with, you know, I became a hardcore crack cocaine addict, alcoholic, and it, uh, it, it, it destroyed my life. How fast does it go from I'm trying this to I'm using multiple times a week? Like, is this the path to I'm using daily to I'm using multiple? Like, how does it go? Within less than six months, I was in my first treatment center. That's how fast the progression of crack cocaine was, mm. is. It's a very addictive drug. 
you'll start out, you know, at first I was fine and I'd see other people who were doing it and they were doing some off the wall shit. And I'm like, you, you really need some help. You really need to stop. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but it became, you know, the more that you used it, the more that you wanted it. You know, it's just, it's kind of, it's a disease that always wants more. Mm-hmm. Addiction is a disease that you always want more. And, uh, you know, so it started, it's just started to engulf my whole life. During this time, I have, have, have a son, I have three kids. And uh, at that time, I only had my son. And, you know, I, I stopped, I stopped seeing my, my son. I mean, I, I could tell you what it was, it's, it's horrible. You know, I've lost many jobs, not because I was ever a bad worker, right. but because I just wouldn't show up. Because once I start, I can't stop. There's there's women who, you know, they'll stand in front of a train, you know, to save you. And and at the end of that relationship, they won't even take a Nerf bullet for you because they hate your guts. Yeah. And it's not because you're a bad person. It's because you're a sick person. And and for me, I didn't know what was wrong with me. So, you know, I started um, hitting um, treatment centers and and treatment centers are really booky. They were, there's there, I had this illusion that if I could only manage well... You know, because, you know, if I could manage, well, I'd be okay. And, you know, and they give you these 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 cards and they tell they explain what your disease is, a biopsychosocial disease. So, so, so when you say you're starting to do treatment centers, this is you saying to yourself, like, hey, I need help? Or is this a group of people or someone close to you saying, pushing you to do this? The first one, the first treatment center was my sister. Okay. It was, you know, I, I you know, I couldn't take it anymore. I told her I was going to kill myself. You know, and next thing you know, I passed out and I see the cops are picking me up. Mm-hmm. I'm not passed out, whatever. They're coming to pick me up. So I'm in the hospital and that's when I was introduced to, you know, there's treatment centers. And that was within the first, first six months of me picking up crack cocaine. But, you know, it didn't stick the first time because I was too young. You know, how could I possibly be a crack cocaine addict first and foremost? This is, you know, this is, this is just a uh, bad luck. And I, there's no way I could be an alcoholic. I mean, get real. Yeah. Right. So I was, um, I wasn't ready yet and I had to suffer more and, um, coming from the family that I come from, um, nobody does drugs. Yeah. I mean, my, 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 my sisters are their, their straight A students or scholars. I mean, you see their awards on the wall. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they don't drink, they don't drug. My oldest sister, she smokes a little bit of, she smokes weed, big deal. Yeah. But I can assure you there's nobody in my family who smokes crack cocaine. And in my culture, if you smoke crack cocaine, you're, you're a piece of shit. You're the lowest, you can't get any lower than that. You're like a leper. And, uh, so for me, I didn't know what was going on because I didn't understand what the disease of addiction was. The best analogy I can say to you is that, you know, I'm on the track and I see the train coming. I go, I'm not going to wait for that train to hit me. I'm just like, I'm going to take myself out. And, uh, you know, I've suicide's a, a big, a big part of my story because I didn't know how to stop. I didn't have any tools, mm-hmm. but it was destroying my life. And I couldn't, I couldn't take the person that I was becoming. Is that a common thing with, I know it's such an individual thing that you can't answer this as a blanket, but is that a common thing that you're self-aware that, man, I'm, uh, I'm not in a good place? Or is it with some people, they're just so fucked up. They don't even know that they're in a bad place. Personally, from what I think, I think, hmm. I would say there's a lot of people who do, and then there's people there's people who just enjoy it, I guess. Okay. You know, there's some people who are lifers. I don't know. Like, there's some people who just they're, they're It's it's not just about the drugs and the booze. It's about the lifestyle. Gotcha. And and they're just they're just as potent and they're just as addictive. 
And for me, I was more, if you want to call it a closet crack cocaine smoker. Mm-hmm. Like you wouldn't know that I smoked crack by my, like if I didn't lose my job and all the other things that would happen because as a direct result of it. But you'd never know that okay. because I never acted like one or per se like your typical, like your Hollywood kind of crack cocaine addict. That's just not how it goes. Right. You know, I'd go to work and after work, I'd go buy my drugs, I'd smoke my crack. And then in the morning I'd go to work and I'd do this over and over again. But there always came that day that. I just was had too much crack. And if I have too much crack, I'm not going to work. I'm not going. It's not over until it's over. And that's how it always was. How does your family know about what's going on with you and the use? Uh, well, my family, oh, I didn't, I stopped talking to them. Booze and drugs are very antisocial. So you become very antisocial, you know, and I stopped talking to my mother because, uh, you know, my mom's going to ask me questions. Right. I don't want to lie to my mom. You know, and then I'm just, I just avoid, started avoiding her. Mm-hmm. So my mom just, she got to the point where, you know, she stopped nagging me because she even said, I, she goes, I noticed the more that I nag you, the less you call me. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of shame and guilt, you know, when, when it did come out that I was on drugs, my mom blamed herself thinking it was her fault, you know, it had nothing to do with her. You know, the best analogy that I can say about when it comes to drugs or, or booze, you know, it's kind of like. Everybody who drinks isn't an alcoholic, and everybody who doesn't drink isn't. It's a soul sickness, mm. you know, and that's what it's really about. It's not about the crack, and it's not about the booze. It's like it's the crack and the booze are only but a tip of the iceberg, but it's everything else that's underwater. They're only but symptoms of a deeper issue. Mm-hmm. For me, I did the treatment centers, you know, because I was the kind of guy that, you know what, I could be the dad because I want to be, you know, like my friends, right? And they're good dads, so I want to be a good dad, right? And now I have two kids. And, and you know, if, maybe just maybe if I found that right lady who could who could fill that hole inside my soul, maybe maybe if I just had that right job, a new beginning, you know? Mm-hmm. But I was the kind of guy that could get the job but couldn't keep the job. I was the kind of guy that could to, to be the dad, but I couldn't remain the father. I was the kind of guy that could get the girl, but I could never keep the girl. And I couldn't understand because... You know, the booze and the crack were always more important. Uh, and I'm trying to measure myself up like I'm a normal person, but I'm not normal like everybody else when it comes to cracking and when it comes to booze. And I started showing up in church because, you know, I was raised with God and I don't have a problem with God. Uh-huh. You know, I'm just one of those people who d- doesn't have a problem with God. God didn't do me dirt. You know, and Christian people were very helpful for me, very helpful for me. And I remember... Um, uh, uh, for, usually if you, well, from my experience is that whenever you decide to, uh, whenever you try to take your life and you do a suicide attempt, what they do is they send you to the peach floor, which is a psych ward. And uh, I remember one time I was in the psych ward and there's this guy from work and his name's and, and was trying to help me for, for, for a while. He even would tell me, he goes, you know, he goes, if you ever want to come to church with me, you know, me and my, you know, I'll come and pick you up. Even if you're in a crack house, I'll come and pick you up. And, and I remember calling crack houses, literal crack houses. He would come drive his car, pick me up and he'd take me to church. Mm-hmm. I'd be drunk, stuck on stupid. I called, he'd take me to church. And he was the kind of guy that, you know what, he hit me with his, with, with his right hand, giving me to my left hand. And he put the money on a D-Lo so I could put some money into the plate. And he was the kind of guy that he would say, you know, me and my wife are going for a bite to eat after church. He goes, would you like to come with us, right? And, you know, uh, he was kind of guy, the best description I could give him is like, he was, uh, he was a light-skinned black guy. And, uh, you know, he was kind of, he's kind of still stuck in the 80s because he had a jerry curl, mm. right? 
but he was he was he was honest he was real about what he was saying so you know i'm in the psych ward now and and they called my name over the pa and and i'm like who's here to see me and it wasn't anybody from my family when i looked around the corner it wasn't the girl that the lady that i was seeing at that time it was his wife and 20 people from the church and i go oh my god i want to be just like you mm. And, uh, you know, so I tried to get better in church for a really long time because church people were good to me. They really tried with me and they'd pick me up. They'd feed me, take me to church. I mean, they did the whole nine yards, but I couldn't, I still couldn't get clean and sober. I'd be praying with the old black ladies in the morning, Monday to Friday. And, you know, I'm, I'm hanging out with people I can't, I'd never bring home, you know? So there was a contradiction to my life. So, um, I guess for one, it changed for me was when I was in a, I was in a treatment center and this guy said you don't want to hear a a speaker tape from this uh, a men's morning meeting and uh, this meeting had about 300 men where it came from you know and they they taped the speaker and uh, and he had the same issues they have the same issues you do so I was in a treatment center he said you want to listen to it I said well it's a 21 day program this is day 2 let's go mm-hmm. and we went up to the fourth floor and he said you know uh, if there's any slippers out there come and shake my hand cuz I was a slipper I was What's in another a slipper? a slipper, somebody, a backslider, a relapser, okay. someone who, who, who gets sober but can't stay sober. And I was one of those, you know, I was a chronic failure when it came to crack cocaine and, and the booze. I, w- I would, you know, go, I'd be in treatment centers and it'd be a 50-50 draw. Sometimes I'd be sober in there and sometimes even smoke crack in the treatment centers because mm. I couldn't stop. And, uh, you know, so when he said that, I, I that resonated for me because I try to get better in the 12-step rooms, but... It wasn't working for me. And, and then he said, if you think you can do this program by yourself, he goes, you're a fool. Believe me, I tried. And, and uh, he was really funny. He was really deep. And, and uh, you know, for me, it's like, wow, this guy's great. And anyhow, they said, you know, when you get out of treatment, they said, are you willing to do, you know, are you willing to go to a meeting every day? Are you willing to do 90 meetings in 90 days? I go, I can do that. And then they said, you know, um, are you willing to pray to God every day? Right. I go, well, I'm a Christian, don't you know me and God, we tight. And then uh, they said, you know, are you willing to, uh, are you willing to get a sponsor? And I'm like, oh yeah, sure, I'll get a sponsor. So I asked this one volunteer counselor and I asked him, I said, will you be my sponsor? And he said, he said, you know, you, you really might want to reconsider. Can you tell us what a sponsor is and what is the role of a sponsor? Well, what a sponsor is, is someone who's come before you, who has the same addiction that you have. And who has found a way out, uh, found a, a new way of life and how to live life on life's terms, and who who's clean and who's sober, who doesn't need need a, a drink or a drug to to function. So that was that's the best description. His sponsor is really beyond that, to be quite honest with you. He's more your friend yeah. as well. He's not just that's just a title, but it's not about a title. It's about a task. Okay. So, you know, I asked this guy, can he be my sponsor? He said, I might, I should reconsider because he does a lot of work at the cottage. And I said, ah, oh, don't worry about it. Right. And anyways, about two weeks later, I, I, I relapsed, I failed. And I couldn't believe that because my best run being clean and sober up until that point was I was able, my best was six months. Hmm. I was able to stay clean and sober for six months. And, uh, but this time I only got two weeks and I couldn't believe it. And, you know, I was smoking crack cocaine and I was drinking that. And I remember that day I was drinking, I was smoking crack cocaine and, and, and it was with this guy, him and his German shepherd, he looked like Captain Caveman. And it was in his basement and his basement didn't even have any concrete. It was just mud. It was dirt. 
And, uh, you know, I just remember doing a hit and I just, I just said, God, I can't do this anymore. And I got on my knees and I didn't, and I said the weirdest prayer that I've ever said in my life at that point in time. And, and I didn't, I didn't say a prayer that I heard in church because I was around church people for years. And so I knew how to pray in that sense. And, and I didn't hear a prayer that I heard in the 12 step rooms. You know, what I did is I got on my knees and I said, Lord, can you please send me a sponsor? That week, I was supposed to go to church with this Christian girl that I was seeing, but we got into an argument. And uh, so I said, I'm going to go to the, that, 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 more, that, that big morning meeting of 300 men, because that, the treatment center would take you to that meeting. And uh, that's where that tape came from. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I don't remember what the speaker said that day, but I do remember this. We were holding hands, and we closed the meeting with the Lord's Prayer. And I said, Lord, today I'm going to find me a sponsor. What's that guy's name I heard on the tape that I heard in treatment? He comes to this meeting, and his name is his name is um his name's mm-hmm. and uh, so anyways I we stop holding hands, and uh, I see this I see this guy and I go excuse me sir I go do you know a guy named he goes yes I do he goes you're talking to him mm. and and that man's been my sponsor ever since and uh, you know he started talking to me like nobody else talked to me he didn't recite the he didn't recite the twelve step book. You know, it didn't sound all preachy, preachy like uh, like some of the counselors. You know, he spoke in the language of the heart. I ask you, what does preachy, preachy sound like? Well, you know, coming from a textbook. Okay. Or, you know, preaching like when someone's talking at you, not to you. Gotcha. For me, he um, he answered many questions for me that I never knew. I never knew what a drug addict or an alcoholic was. I didn't believe, I didn't know that it was. I had a disease. I thought I was a disgrace. I didn't understand that I had a disease. You know, it wasn't about alcoholics and addicts and not bad people getting good. It's They're about sick people getting well. And I didn't know I was sick until I met this man. And then he schooled me, my illness or my sickness. But he was able to do it very methodically. By working with him, I started to do the things that he suggested that I do. And by doing the things that he suggested for me to do, you know, I started to become the man that I, you know, I never was. Mm-hmm. And I, and I got clean and sober and, you know, it was, it was great, but did I stay clean and sober the first time I got a year and, 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 and I went back out cause I, uh, <laughs> cause there's no fool like an old fool, right? Um, the only suggestion that ever hurt me was the one I never used. And for me, it was about sick people don't make sick people well. So early in my sobriety, I told him, I said, well, you know what? I got the urge. I want to tap me some skins, you know? So he said he didn't have a problem with it as long as I was honest and she was honest and, mm-hmm. you know, she was willing and I was willing. So I told him a couple of weeks later, I met this girl in rehab. He goes, what the fuck are you doing? I go, what are you talking about? I go, you said if she didn't have a, you know, she was honest and I was honest and if she was willing and if I was willing, you didn't have a problem with it. And then he said to me, he said, you know, I told you to take advantage of the healthy ones, not the sick ones, mm. and jest, right? And then I thought about it. I go, wait a minute. I go, if I'm doing the steps with you, and I, you're my sponsor, and she's in rehab, and she's not doing the steps, and she doesn't have a sponsor, that makes me pretty effed up. And then he said, if you really want to know what effed up is, is that's paradise to you. You know, what he's really saying is that when you go get a, when you go to buy a new car, you don't go to the junkyard. Yeah. You know, sick people don't make sick people well. And, you know, for me, I didn't listen to that. So she got sober. I got sober. She went out. 
And then I asked him, what do you think I should do? He goes, you might want to walk away. And, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to do that. And cause I said, you know, everybody deserves a second chance. And he said, you might lose more than what you've gained. And, um, so anyways, we went back out drinking and drugging for about two years. She got pregnant and then we, we had our daughter and, you know, she was born. I was got clean and sober. We had to be separated to get clean and sober again because we weren't good for each other at that point in time. She was living in a re- uh, she was living in a, um, a, a shelter for women with kids, for pregnant women and kids. And I was living in a, a recovery home. And our daughter was born, and we got our own place together. Um, but she decided that you know she needed to do some. If you want to say she wasn't finished, so she went. And she relapsed. So her sobriety date, I'm over 12 years clean and sober. You know, uh, she got a year again and she went out and then she got clean and sober again for four years. Mm-hmm. And then she went out again. And, but I still say clean and sober during that time. In 2014, myself and uh, my daughter, we went out to, we went to the movies and her mother, well, what happened that day, her mother was, um, a friend of ours, her best friend's boyfriend, he died of a heroin overdose. Uh-huh. So she called me at work that day, and it was a Friday, and she she said that, you know, that the last time that she was at a funeral was uh, her brother when, uh, he was, when she was 10 years old. And then she said that she wanted to give sobriety a, a try, another try. And so that eve, that afternoon I got home from work, and... You know, she says, we need to, I need to pick up my daughter. I said, I'm not picking up her. I'm picking up my, I go, you, I just came from work. It's, you know, you go pick her up. She goes, well, I just got back from the funeral. I'm tired. So I couldn't fall asleep anyway. So I went and uh, got my daughter from the sitters and took her for a bite to eat at Popeye's and we went to, to the movies. And while we're in the movies, uh, my phone started vibrating, but I just said, you know, we're watching the movie. I'll get it after the movie. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I got a phone call and, and it was, uh, and he's saying dead, dead. And, uh, you know, I go, what are you talking about? I just saw it. And I did a redial and, uh, on the, you know, I did a redial and the phone number was a police officer's number. So, you know, my heart sank to my stomach. And when I get out of the, when my, me, my daughter and myself got out of the Uber and what well, my daughter was seven years old, she got it. We got out of the Uber. The police were there and brothers and his, you know he's freaking out and he's smacking his head and goes my sister's dead my sister's dead and you know while we were at the movies um my partner the one who i got clean and sober with who we who was my daughter's mother mm-hmm. um you know she was killed by uh by the go train walking our dog so that happened and what when i like i said in two and a half hours our life changed but I didn't, the beautiful thing about the program of the 12 steps is that, you know, I didn't need to pick up a drink and I didn't need to pick up a drug. You know, I, I, I've still remained to stay clean and sober because it teaches you how to live life on life's terms, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, for me, that's a, one of the greatest things besides, you know, the greatest gift that I could ever gift is get is my sobriety. And would I say that I'm a, a power of example? And absolutely not but I'm an example of a power that really works mm-hmm. and that's really real. And, you know, there's a very big spiritual component to the 12 steps. And, you know, for me, um, I get to raise my daughter. I get to be the father that I never was to my other two children. And we have a great relationship. And uh, 
it's definitely a, our relationship has always been a good relationship. And, uh, you know, I, my daughter about a year ago said to me, she goes, she calls me Poppy. She goes, Poppy, I'm so glad that mommy chose you to be my dad. I go, oh my God, do you even, I'm thinking, do you even know how deep you really went? That you're saying that you approve of your mom's choice, right? So it's um, definitely different. And uh, I still go to my 12-step meetings and I do for what, do for other alcoholics and addicts, you know, what was done for me. And that's part of, that's part of, um, that's how you stay sober too. You carry the message to the next suffering alcoholic. And that's, that's just what we do. And it's a good life. Is it hard talking about it to like me? No, not I'm really. I'm not in the program, so. Not, not, not really. I mean, there's, you're going to get people who, who understand and then you're going to get people who, who don't understand, but there is a lot of ignorance yeah. towards alcohol and drugs. And, and one of the great things about remaining anonymous is that you don't have to sell this program. It sells itself. Yeah. So by me, if I ever told people who and what I was, they'd already judge me, you know, and, and it's kind of like you shouldn't judge a book by the chapter that you walked in on, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of people would have done that. But because I was anonymous and I never told people my story where I work, yeah, yeah. you know, they were able to see who I was, who, who I am. Not a title, not because of this, because I've never gotten hired. People would not have invited me into their homes, you know, and, and just a lot of things. And, and I get to go places and I've done things and I, and I have friends respect me. You know, so for me, does it bother talking to? It depends. You know, will I stay anonymous when I need to? For sure. But if it's to help somebody else who's like me, I don't mind. You know, for me, it's it's a part of who I am. It's made me who I am. What is being clean and relapsing? Like, what's a, what does a craving feel like? I, I, I'll tell you why I'm asking this. I heard Howard Stern. He had Mike Tyson on. And Mike Tyson was talking about his addiction. And Mike Tyson said, it's like feeling hungry. It's like, you know, that, that feeling you get when like, you're genuinely just hungry and it doesn't go away until you just fucking eat. Pretty good analogy of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's the case of the, mm. like, you know, what's coming and you can't stop it. Yeah. You know, being clean is being free from all mind altering substances. Mm. And, and here's the, the illusion. I never knew that I was an alcoholic. I just thought that I had a problem with crack. I, you know, until I was schooled because I didn't know that. I didn't know that I didn't know that yet. And there's a lot of misunderstandings. So I thought that I could, you know, I could drink. But, you know, it's it's many road leads to hell for a guy like me. So when you're clean and when you're sober, it means that you're free from all mind-altering substances. Not just the drugs, but it's the booze, it's the weed. Because it all will eventually lead me back to the same thing. So, um, a craving for me would be where you have knots in your stomach yeah, and you have an obsession that you can't get rid of. Do you get those anymore? I get thoughts still. I've always had thoughts and I, and they, and I, then it, but I don't have the, the obsession to pick up. There's, and there's a big difference. Right. Your thoughts are your thoughts. You can't stop your thoughts. Yeah. But I have a choice today. And before I didn't have a choice, you know, I'm a monkey and I like bananas. If you put a banana in front of me, I'm going to eat it. Because this is what I am. But what has happened now is that, you know, the obsession has been lifted, has been removed. But I didn't do that. You know, a sick mind can't heal a sick mind. That's why there's a spiritual component that's very important to this. I had deep-seated beliefs, but my beliefs weren't alone, were not 
keeping me or even getting me clean and sober because I could stop. I just couldn't stay stopped. You know, it takes something outside of you that's going to make you stop. By being around people who've had the same troubles and tribulations, trials and tribulations as I have, they were able to show me a way out. If you give a man fish, he'll be hungry again. But if you teach a man how to fish, he'll never be hungry. And and that's what the program, the 12, the 12 Steps taught, has taught me to do. But it's a lifelong journey and it's a lifelong, you don't stop this program. You, It's for the rest of your life. Right. It's your life. But does it ever feel like it's just fucking exhausting? No. Nope. No. You know, I'm not the kind of guy who can do something for nothing. It's just not in my makeup. And if you're not doing this program right, it's kind of, it's, you know, and if you're not getting, sorry, if you're not getting anything out of this program, mm-hmm. then it's kind of like sex. You're not doing it right. Because if it was the same mundane thing day after day after day, you wouldn't be able to do it. I've got a way better life now than I did before. You know, my life is very robust. It's very rich. Not in in a sense of a wealth, but it's very rich. Yeah. And I'm very happy and I'm, and I'm generally happy and content. You know, and everything I have today, I have way more than I ever did before. And and that's on so many on so many different levels. It's it's just it's very deep. But it doesn't stop. It keeps getting deeper. Right. It's a journey. Is there a rock bottom? You know, when you always hear someone say, or through television, like, this is the only this is the only exposure I ever have to stuff like this. Right? Is whatever fucking fake Hollywood puts out there. And is there a rock bottom that it's like you gotta hit that before? Well, you do. You do have to hit a bottom. But just because you know, you can say these clever things that you know. So how do you know when you, you've hit your bottom? Well, quit digging. It might it might sound really funny, but that shit still doesn't work either. That happens when it happens. It never. There's many times that I wanted to stop, but I couldn't stop. But one day something just snapped in me. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know that day. I didn't know when that day was gonna come. I just didn't. But what I do know is that I kept trying. You know, and I didn't. I didn't give up. And what what I would say to anybody out there, if you're if you're if you're if you're struggling, you know, a man without hope is a man without oxygen. And 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 the best thing that I can say is that you kind of got to be be the stone cutter. And what the stone cutter does is that he he has a rock and he's he's chipping away at this rock, right? And and he's hammering away at this rock and he doesn't even make a dent in this rock. About a hundred blows, mm-hmm. but on the hundred and first blow, he splits the rock in two. But he knows it wasn't the last blow that broke the rock. It was all the ones that went before it. That's been my experience, you know. Just never, you just never give up. Yeah. So. It's deep, man. It takes, in my mind, like someone with a serious will to climb through. Pain's a very big motivator. What's your, what was what was the biggest, most hurtful part of the whole thing? The biggest hurtful. Mm. What caused the most pain? It's more. Addiction and alcoholism, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's based on a soul sickness. So it's, it's, I would say, would I say that I'm an, I'm, I'm an alcoholic and addict because of my past? Completely because of that? No. Did it play a part? Sure, it did. It did at any point you fully 100 blamed your past? Oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. But I mean, a, a part of it too is about forgiveness. And it's always easier to ask for forgiveness than to give it. But the thing is, when it comes to forgiveness, though... If, an, if forgiveness starts with the offended, not the offender. For me, I had to, uh, I, you have to make peace with your past. Because I had to make peace with my past. Painful, I mean, 
you know, in, in ways it was kind of, it was, it was necessary because unless I was in pain, I would have never done the things that I needed to do to get better, to get well. But it was through that pain I was able to get well. It was a blessing in disguise. It didn't feel like one at the time, right. but it was definitely necessary. You know, sometimes bad's got to get worse before it gets, ever gets better. Yeah. You know, the easier, softer way doesn't work with a guy like me. Does the easier, softer way, and again, you can't really just generalize, does it work? Or does it have to be something aggressive? Um, I mean, well, put it this way, right? Every beagle's a dog, but not every dog's a beagle. Different methods for different people. Mm -hmm. For me, I was pretty hardcore. So my sponsor was pretty hardcore for me. But that kind of approach wouldn't work with everybody right, because right, we're not right. all the same kind of people. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. But we can know the same things. The, the program never changes. It's still the same for each and every one of us. It's just not everybody approaches it the same way. Right, the application of it yes. alters for the individual. Yes. Did you ever get into anything else other than crack and booze? No. It just, and, and the only reason why I never got into it, anything else, you know, I, I didn't do, haven't tried crystal meth or heroin or, you know, it's just it's the only reason why it's not to say that I wouldn't, I've never would have done it. It's just not in those circles. Crack stays generally stays with crack. Booze stays with booze. You know, if you do heroin, it's with heroin. I it just from, you know, I've never, fentanyl wasn't a big thing. At least it wasn't in my circle. But would I have tried them? Sure. It just They just weren't there. Did you ever, in these times, have run-ins with the law? I've been very fortunate in that sense where I don't have a criminal record whatsoever, thank God. Yeah. It just worked out that way for me, um, and I'm very grateful for that. But no, I never, I was, I was arrested once for being drunk and, and intoxicated in a public place. Mm -hmm. And I just got a ticket, a regular ticket right, right. for that. When I went to, I spent the night in the drunk tank. That's as far as getting arrested has gone for me. So I've been very fortunate in that sense. You seem really put together, dude. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Talk to my sponsor. He'll tell you the truth. <laughs> I mean, you're self-aware. I feel like, what do I know? But I feel like your self-awareness is a huge part of where you're at now and your success with it. If there's anything that I could say in, in, in regards to what you said, I could never have done this by myself. Mm -hmm. I just could never have done this by myself. The reason why I'm here, you know, this, it's a spiritual program, not a religious one. So, you know, for me, I'm sober by God's, by God's grace. And I'm also sober for the, for the, for the, the, the program, the 12 step program a big component for me that saved my life was good sponsorship. Someone who took the time with me to school me, to teach me, but who's walked for, and this man's been my sponsor since 2004, and he's still my sponsor. So for me, if, if there's anything, it's, it's because of him. He's, what, 43 years clean and sober. You know, I'm only a 12. So he's been, he's been many things to me. I guess I guess the best thing that I can say is is for me my sponsor has been my friend is my friend and the greatest one I could say for that would be what a good friend is is someone who knows the songs of your heart and when you forget them they sing them back to you and he's come from a good sponsor too you know and it's it's, it's just it's helping your fellow brother but there's no money that's involved in this yeah it's a sincere desire to help someone else you can't even really say it in words 
I would strongly suggest if there's anybody who's out there, get a sponsor. I would never have known how to do it. I could read all the books I want to, still wouldn't know how to do it. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for being open about stuff. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for the openness. You guys have been listening to Massage Therapists in a Microphone.